Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 156. Well, just ahead, we're gonna take a look at how Kohl's jacks prices, passing along rising costs to their customers. And Deer sees inflation coming from supply chain problems, shocker, and predicts just when it's gonna end. And we'll drill down on an interesting cloud startup's Expensify with Expensify CEO David Barrett. It was a really fun conversation. I want you to hear it. But first, I want you to hear from our sponsors. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more. All within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, and more. But hit the subscribe button, follow us, and catch every show. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We're gonna talk about the business stories behind stocks and a move. Joining me as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, how art thou? Corey, I am thou great. That's not how you're supposed to say it. How would you say it in Old English? Uh, we don't have to. How was your trip? I was strange that I was in Los Angeles last weekend and you weren't there. How was the uh, wedding? Yeah, we missed each other. One of our former colleagues got married in Palm Beach. It was beautiful. She was actually was, already married. She was actually already married. This was the ceremony. Um, so I don't have to be offended that that hussy didn't invite me to her wedding. Wow. But she can be offended by you calling her that. Um, I have um, actually called her that on the air many times. It is, it is a term of endearment between the lovely Brie Taylor and I. Is she still Brie Taylor? Did she change her last name? Uh, great question. I don't, I have no idea, to be honest. Anyway. I think she'll always be Brie Taylor to me. Congratulations, Brie Taylor. I'm happy for her. I'm always happy about Brie Taylor. Hey, um, I want to talk about what we do here before we start to do it. Because okay. uh, my, my oldest son has been getting involved in the stock market. And... Uh -oh. He picked an interesting time to do it. And every day he's being tortured by this market. And I asked him a question this morning that he did not have an answer to that I don't know that I have an answer to about myself, which is if you could pick an investment that you knew would be up, let's say 20% in a year, but you couldn't look at it for a whole year, would that be okay with you? Uh, why not? Would you want to make that investment? Well, I, I think it's an interesting question because, you know, those of us who are deeply involved in the stock market who trade, you know, those of us who consume financial media, which is buy, 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 sell, 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 trade, trade, trade. It, it's the activity of getting in and out of the, of the uh, financial instrument is maybe more important than what happens to the financial, financial instrument, or at least it seems that way sometimes. Um, I think that, you know, maybe my son, maybe me, are chasing the action, not the investment return sometimes. Um, I don't know. I think it's important to make sure you've got, you know, if you're focused on the cart or the horse. Um, I think most of the financial media is focused on the horse. But um, what we're trying to do with this show is really focus on the cart and really focus on the businesses and really understand the underlying fundamentals that will ultimately drive the stock price because it will drive the business itself. So what you're saying is buy and don't look at it for a year. No, but maybe understand your investments and understand the companies is going to be a little more 
um, useful than looking at a wiggly line on a chart. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Kohl's. Kohl's trades under KSS and shares have fallen over 27% in a year, dropping over 18% just over the past five days. And if you look at a five-year chart, Kohl's shares have barely moved slightly higher by just over 1%. I've 1% moved a lot five gains. Years. I've a lot five years ago. I can't even remember five years ago. What was five years ago? I mean, it was 2017. My goodness. That was a different yeah. world. Yeah, it was a different world. Um, Kohl's is a classic example, right? If you look at the news about Kohl's, it's all about this potential corporate takeover. Uh, there's been some reporting that says that uh, Simon Properties and Brookfield Asset Management want to take the company out. But, you know, the underlying business is what sort of matters here. And I thought it was really interesting to listen to the CEO today uh, or this week talk about their uh, what happened in the most recent quarter and the things that are working for them, the things that aren't working for them, and the most importantly, the places they can, uh, as they like to say in that business, take price, which is to say jack the prices on certain things where they think the customers uh, are going to buy anyway. And um, Take prices, like leading a dog. Where am I going to take, take the price? price? Just I'm going to lead, lead the dog. The dog. Yes. So insulting, that term, taking is the it? price. Yeah, it is. Well, yes, because they're taking it from the customer. Um, well, uh, interesting to listen to CEO Michelle Goss uh, here she is talking about where Kohl's can take price. Men's especially strong, strong positive comp in the quarter. Those new brands like Tommy are doing really well. Um, and then in addition, you know, as we all face kind of this new normal with inflation, we're really focused on driving value. And uh, we have a very agile model. Um, you know, elasticity is key. So where we can and should, should take price. Um, we are in those less elastic businesses and categories and where we do need to be even more value oriented, like in our private brands, a bit more elastic, we're taking price. So it's it's really navigating that process. So I look at all of this and uh, we expect to see sequential improvement, um, especially in the back half where we are expecting a positive comp in the back half of the year. So, yeah. So uh, the company's saying, you know, back half of the year, positive comps. Sounded like a relatively um, positive uh, conference call. The stock, as you mentioned, uh, getting punished, but all stocks are getting punished right now. Um, but I think it's really interesting that they do have that insight down to a product level for such a big business where they can really, you know, move prices around to try to catch up with kind of their cost inflation. Uh, a lesson every company is trying to figure out uh, how to how to follow. I have to say, I do think Kohl's is one of those retailers that understands their consumer very, very well and served, has served their consumer very well over the years. And that's why they've been able to disrupt the space when everyone thought there's no place to disrupt. Corey, what is your next drill down? It's like a deer and company. Deer and company trades under DE and shares have lost 11% in 12 months and have taken a bit of a dive over the past 30 days. Yeah, well, yeah, who hasn't? Uh, who hasn't seen their portfolio do that? Um, interesting uh, company because it tells us a lot about a lot, I think. And uh, in their conference call discussing uh, their earnings and, and where things are tough for them right now, uh, particularly around costs, so really talking about how their their costs are rising faster than they can rise uh, uh, prices to customers more than they can take price, as our friends at Kohl's would say. Uh, at Deere in particular, uh, they focused on freight and they focused on the supply chain things we've heard so much about. Um, and uh, even though, uh, you know, they've managed to handle some of the earlier problems around semiconductors and other things, 
now recent shutdowns, COVID-related shutdowns in China um, have really been hitting these guys uh, and their ability to ship product globally. Um, it's creating logistics problems, you know, everywhere, not just in China. So in addition to that, you know, they're, they've also seen rising costs. They had some, uh, some strikes that cost them some money in terms of getting production to, altogether, but also their overhead is just higher now because they're paying their workers more. I would argue sort of from an economic standpoint, it's good to have your workers getting paid more, even if it raises prices for some of these companies in the short term. Um, I think that, you know, the workers with more money in their pocket are going to spend it. Maybe it's the one place we do want to see inflation uh, on, on a, a controllable, predictable level. Um, but uh, what these guys are saying is that the supply chain problems in particular, um, they think uh, won't get better really for the rest of the year. Here is the director of investor relations for Deer, Brent Norwood. Freight remains elevated too. You know, recent COVID lockdowns in China have caused delays in shipping globally, compounding some of the previous logistics uh, bottlenecks. You know, with the supply chain backed up, we're utilizing significantly more air for air freight solutions, and we expect this to continue throughout the second half of 2022. Uh, in addition to material and freight, overhead has increased. Uh, this has come from the choppiness in the supply base and is particularly evident in the number of partially completed machines uh, in our inventory that are missing parts required to be complete. Uh, so, so while the compare gets easier, we probably won't see much moderation in material and freight costs this year. You know, fortunately, price realization should get progressively better, uh, potentially making the, first, the fourth quarter the highest margin period for us, which is a bit atypical. So it's not taking price, it's price realization. Let the, release the euphemisms. But uh, price realization uh, takes a little longer when you're talking about um, mining equipment and bulldozers and trucks uh, than it does uh, the, the, the t-shirts coming out of coals, perhaps. I'd love to meet the person who came up with that phrase, that term, price. Price realization. realization. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I don't know. Give that guy a raise or that woman a raise. Corey, what's your next drill down? It's finally, we finally found a stock that's up a little bit in Foot Locker. Okay, Foot Locker. Foot Locker shares trade under FL and shares have dropped 48% in a year. Uh, basically, they haven't recovered from an over 10-point sell-off that happened a few months ago at the end of February 2022. Yeah, although the in the last week, the stock up 6%, which uh, any of us would take, I think, right now. But uh, I thought... Um, it was interesting to listen to the company talk about um, uh, what COVID gave them in terms of changing of business process that has led them to really be able to handle um, what is coming down the pike in terms of um, inflationary pressures, changing consumer patterns as a result, um, and the ability to really be flexible uh, at a retail level. Um, the very uh, uh, boosterist uh, Frank Bracken, the chief operating officer at Foot Locker, um, uh, I don't know, it was a little too high school football coach for me. Uh, but I was I was intrigued that they really changed the way they do things during COVID and that um, as difficult as that was, it has allowed the company now to respond to what's going on in the marketplace um, uh, quickly, um, uh, maybe in a more agile fashion and put the products in front of customers that customers are ready to buy right now and how that might've been different even a month ago Foot Locker seems to uh, say they are able to adapt to this. 
Here is Chief Operating Officer Frank Bracken. The last two years have been anything but predictable and easy in the marketplace. And throughout the pandemic, I think our enterprise has learned how to be agile and flexible, how to react to what's happening in the marketplace in shorter time increments. So what's happening in the next 30 days, the next 90 days, and how do we win and position ourselves with consumers? And that's a muscle that we've honed and we're going to lean on as we operate into Q2 in the back half of the year. Now, behind that agility muscle is a pretty robust set of real-time predictive analytics that we use in the business. We look at traffic trends, conversion rates, our add-to-cart abandonment rates, effectiveness of promotions. We've got a machine learning sales forecasting model. And we use those insights to regulate our receipt flow, our merchandise mix, to throttle performance marketing, and, and obviously adjust our pricing. And so all of that agile management of the business plus the cost reduction work means that we'll be playing you know, what I'll call really good defense. Our teams have become very adept at that. I think what really excites me though is that we've been anticipating this moment over the course of the last 12, year, uh, 12 months. And as a management team, we knew that comping stimulus and winning consumers would be challenging. So uh, we've been playing some really great offense on the other side of the ball in order to meet this moment. So great offense, great defense, playing on the right side of the ball, whatever. Um, I think it's uh, interesting to see these guys that, that COVID, you know, really did kind of help some of these companies really um, change their business practices and, and figure out way to, ways to handle change faster, which will benefit them uh, for a long time to come. I don't know if I live in a bubble or what, but I didn't realize people still got their shoes from Foot Locker. Well, they, they do. How is this company still around? Um, it's, it's like a GameStop. It used to be. No, it's not. It's a, it's a, it's a thriving retailer right now. I, I can see that, but I just, it's, I find it surprising. Like, you know, it is a legacy company. I grew up with Foot Locker, but like, I don't know anyone that shopped at a Foot Locker for maybe 10 years. That's really just about you. Maybe. Um, they do have a, importantly, a changing relationship with Nike and their Nike inventories in particular. They talked about how those are going to be reduced uh, in the near term. Um, but uh, I mean, can you go to footlocker.com? I'm going to do that right now. Um, maybe instead we can finish the show, but coming up next, <laughs> I want to talk about a really interesting conversation with uh, the CEO of Expensify, uh, David Barrett, talking about, you know, talking about a company that's changing things and changing the way they do business and getting ready for the long haul and focused on the long haul, not the short term. A company that bans the discussion of, of uh, the stock price by employees. We're going to hear about that and more from David Barrett when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now by the CEO of Expensify, David Barrett. David, glad to have you on. Um, uh, you were asking me when we were off uh, uh, the microphone, I thought we'd do it live for listeners to who's the audience here. And the audience is thinking, Corey has no idea who we are, but in <laughs> fact, Corey does. So I don't, we don't give a shit about the stock price. We don't care about how stocks trade fundamentally. We talk about publicly traded companies because we care about the companies. We care about the business. So I really want to understand how your business works. What are the levers or that you push and pull to sort of manage that business and make it work? And, and who are you trying to serve? So thank you for joining us. Expensify is such an interesting company. Um, uh, and like I said, I don't care about the stock price. It doesn't, you know, the fact that the stock has declined a lot over the course of the last year 
doesn't really tell us anything about your business. What is your business? What problem are you trying to solve? Sure. Well, uh, hey, thanks for having me here. It's, it's great. Interesting. You yeah. should start with not looking at the uh, stock price. That was actually the very first rule that we established after going public. So like uh, uh, November 11th, basically at the uh, IPO party after basically said, okay, rule number one of being a public company is we never talk about share price. Um, it's fight never club. mentioned in, in any it's sort of- club. There uh, is no fight club. <laughs> exactly. It's like, we, we, it's basically forbidden to talk about it in any Slack room uh, at the work. You don't talk about it basically around the table or whatever it is. Share price is not part of the discussion. Also, I don't look at the share price. I have not looked up the share price since I left the NASDAQ studio on IPO day. Um, and so every once in a while, like, you know, it comes across my desk or something like this, but we've worked very hard to say like, no, we are, we are building a long-term business. Every discussion needs to be about generating positive cash flow. That is the only long-term value creator. Everything else is just a distortion. Free cash flow or cash flow from operations? Well, you know, I'm not an accountant. I actually don't even know the difference between those. Um, but I would it's say, important to uh, know. Companies that spend or, a fortune building new factories or doing acquisitions every quarter, um, Hewlett Packard comes to mind, right? Where they do acquisitions every, every quarter. They have one-time write-offs every quarter for 21 years or so. Hmm. Those, those are not cash. They might have cash flow from operations, but they don't have sure. free cash flow. I mean, like real, real cash. Like, so I guess yeah. that'd be free cash flow in terms of actually like depositing money into your bank account consistently year after year. And so I think okay. that Expensify is one of the very rare profitable unicorns that has actual like real gap profit that actually makes money. So talk to me. So what is the business? What problem are you solving? Uh, well, fundamentally, we do expense reports that don't suck. It's basically, you know, trying to make the world a better place, one expense report at a time. And fundamentally, that comes down to, you know, you're a business traveler, you're going to a business trip, or a business trip might just to be driving across Ohio, going to Home Depot to pick up supplies, whatever that might be. And then you have some expense that you want to either get reimbursed from your company or just track for tax deductions. That whole world is a complicated sort of pre-accounting flow where there are non-accountants doing accounting work, and we try to make that easy. Yeah, it, it, it really is a nightmare, um, as, as my, many of my bosses will tell you, my expenses in particular have been a nightmare over the course of the last few decades. Um, but when I went to work for a company that used Expensify, I was blown away at how, I, I'm sorry to make this like commercial, but I was blown away how simple it was. <laughs> well, Take you. a photograph of the damn, of the receipt, and it gets loaded up, it gets filed in your expenses if you want it to be right from that moment, it gets added to whenever you do file. It, it, it just made it so uh, alarmingly easy the, the, the former treasurers at the companies I've worked at are like, then why wouldn't you turn to the damn report, Johnson? But uh, it, why, is, why are expenses such a nightmare for most companies? Why, why, is the, why are the existing systems so hard? I mean, your, yours is like space age, it seems to me. Uh, well, space age would be 1960s, which would be kind to most expense systems. But why are they so difficult? Why haven't they evolved sure. with other company processes? Yeah, I think that's a good question because it sounds obvious. Like the problem has been around since the dawn of time, and but it hasn't really been improved. When I came onto the scene, like we were the very first expense reporting mobile app, the, uh, the first to offer any integrated receipt scanning, like Concur was the competition of the day. Right. And the way that you would upload receipts was through fax. Um, and so the question is, so why are all these uh, pretty obvious improvements not happening? And I think it comes down to the business model. Like fundamentally, what differentiates Expensify from every one of our competition because we have a completely different business model than everyone else. Everyone else has the same business model, which is trying to have a salesperson talk to the CEO or CFO or whoever, and then they make a buying decision, roll it out to the company. And so the employee concerns are actually not part of the buying process. They're kind of irrelevant. To every one of our competitors, 
the employee experience is basically, it can't be so bad that they reject it, but it doesn't actually matter because the employee doesn't see it until after the contract is signed. We have a completely different business model. Everything starts with an individual employee downloading the app for free before their boss. And they say, don't ask permission, don't wait to be asked, just download it and see what happens. Then they submit their expense report up the reporting chain and we make their expense report into a highly targeted marketing message directly to the decision maker. So for us, a good employee experience is not an optional thing that you deal with at the end. It is the very first thing at the top of funnel requirement for our business model. It, it does seem that that coincides with a change in the power of the worker over the boss. Sure. Um, and I don't, I guess I don't really fundamentally understand, you know, what the labor numbers suggest that kind of power. I remember during the dot-com bubble, I'm old, um, during the dot-com bubble, I was writing a story for what would have been the last issue of the industry standard. The story never saw print, but the story was why work sucks again. And that the balance of the notion was the balance of power had really shifted from worker back to employer. And that that had happened after the, the collapse of the dot-com bubble or within a year of that, we had the Scott Adams, the Dilbert, um, Illustrator had a picture of Dilbert at his desk looking up at a noose coming down from the sky. <laughs> uh, that was the, the cover art. Uh, but I, there was a change in the power of the worker versus the employer. Right now we have uh, a tremendous number of job openings, worker flexibility like we've never seen before, toss in a cauldron of, of COVID and work from home. And I think that we still have workers calling the shots. Um, it would seem that Expensify is in the right place at the right time for that. But yeah, and I think we saw this early on. I think there's a, a bunch of trends, you know, you're old, so you remember the whole consumerization of IT trend, where basically, like, if you go back a while before, like, you would be you given a You didn't have to agree with me. You didn't have to agree with me. Oh, no, and, but, Corey. Yes, but I'd say- 80 is um, the new 50. <laughs> like, then uh, I think it really got unlocked with- um, uh, the iPhone. Uh, basically, people yeah. started bringing their own phone to work and using it for work. So no longer like issued a BlackBerry or something like this, like screw your phone or like the uh, the MacBook. It's like, no, I actually don't want to use your laptop. I can use this other laptop and things like this. Uh, the consumer choices got so good that I think um, and Apple was able to tap into a very high influence group like the designers and engineers. And then that sort of trickled down to everyone else. And so basically, I think the IT departments lost their power uh, over basically these, uh, over IT purchasing decisions. And that has trickled down into the software as well. Now, there's a lot going on. And I think that um, uh, we're seeing the whole like great resignation or whatever it is. There's a, a big society-wide reckoning of basically like, is work as valuable as we think it should be? Like, I think there's new generations just don't have the same sort of consumeristic attitudes that older ones did. They're more comfortable. They're, in China, there's the whole life flat movement. So this is a real global phenomenon that we're seeing. So what are the levers you control, then back to one of my original questions here, that you control to control your growth? I mean, obviously you want to put the app in front of lots of people who aren't using it. If the idea is you can have users spawn the growth, and, I, and I'll say, you know, you mentioned the iPhone. I remember when I went to work at Bloomberg in 2010, they were fosting a, a, a BlackBerry on me. Now, I'm sure there was a time <laughs> when people were begging for Blackberries there. I don't want a BlackBerry. I had an iPhone. And I kept yeah. that BlackBerry in my desk. And, and the, the New Yorkers, I was in San Francisco, the New Yorkers like, Check your BlackBerry. I'm like, I don't have a fucking BlackBerry. I've got part of my language. I don't have a BlackBerry. I have an iPhone. And that's what I'm using the Bloomberg app with. And eventually, and eventually they did catch up. And they figured yeah. out that that's where their users were, whether it was their, their, their employees were the last of their concerns. But the corporate users paying $25,000 a year were a concern. And that's why they finally created some iPhone apps. Um, what, is the, what are the tools that you can control, though, in terms of getting your product out there? Well, I think that 
we have a different attitude. We don't try to control, we try to harness. And that's a, a different mindset. So for example, we'd say like, there's kind of most business models are like motorboats. Uh, you fill up, fuel up the tank, you go as far as you can on a tank of gas, and you hope that you get to the next harbor before you run out of gas. And basically, that's how that's why like the vast majority of Silicon Valley just has these eternally lossy models that basically just right. burn cash for their entire miserable existences. Right. But all of the oceans were explored by sailboat. Uh, I think that basically we have a different model. We say, hey, what are the incredibly powerful forces around us, and how do we harness those forces? to go over the horizon. And so our model is less about trying to get predictable, short-term, small growth. And basically, how do we harness these uh, large, ongoing, but volatile trends? And so I would say, we don't have a business model which has um, specific levers to hit basically particular targets, but we also don't run our business in that particular way. We have a business model that has a tremendous amount of like very thick profit margins and things like this. So we can actually endure volatility in our business model and also sort of capture it. Just to give like one example, um, our, uh, our pricing model, uh, you get a 50% discount if you commit to an annual commitment, which is great. So it means that you have a huge discount if you sign up for 12 months. But a lot of our customers actually have overage such that basically they don't predict their own needs on a predictable basis. And so when they need extra seats, they can get the seats, but they pay double. So this means that actually we have a, a very small or uh, a, a small number of overage seats on a monthly basis. They have high, very high leverage because they can actually uh, pay twice as much. This creates right. unpredictability for our revenue, which kind of sucks. But the upside is it means that we're capturing all this There's incredibly high margin revenue. And so yeah. it's less around, I think people get too distracted by the predictability. And I think we focus more on long-term growth. And we it's predictable over the long run, if you will. Uh, but the uh, the short run is a bit volatile and it's fine. It's just bumpy waters. So is the right number to focus when we look at your financials? Is it um, is it recurring revenues? Is it um, is it receivables? I mean, what's the what's what's the secret sauce number, not just top line growth or is it top? I would, line say, growth? Uh, I would say it's top line growth, but over the long run. Um, and I, I would say the number I care about uh, would be free cash flow, uh, basically yeah. like actual money in the bank over the long haul. Um, And so I'd say, but that's goes up and down. We make investments, things happen. I would say fundamentally an investment expense I shouldn't be based upon any particular number. Like you shouldn't look at a number and say like, that number looks good right now. So I'm going to make this buying decision. And then, oh, that number changed. And so I'm going to sell. If that's your attitude, you're you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And again, I'm not trying to give investment advice for anybody. Um, (laughs) As as anyone who looks at my portfolio would know. Um, I think that, um, actually I've done fine. I shouldn't complain. Um, But I I think that, there, there's a, there's not there's a ever uh, an evergreen debate about the usefulness of quarterly reporting and whether investors are too focused on quarterly reporting. And I 100% think that the did they make it, did they beat it, did they miss it is a stupid argument, stupid discussion that this this podcast uh, is meant to correct. But um, I do think that it's useful to monitor how things are going. You know, it's sure if you, if, you, if you've got cholesterol through the roof, you might want to get your heart checked, and there might be a problem there, right? I mean, you know. That, that there are there are numbers that matter. And if there's a concurrence sure. of lots of different numbers going the wrong way, you want to know which numbers to focus on. Well, the, the ones we focus on are the ones that we reveal. And it'd be like one, top line revenue, uh, and also uh, active paid users, basically. Um, and so as an aside, actually, we don't give quarterly guidance. Uh, so right. we give long-term guidance. And it's basically say, look, we feel very confident in the long-term growth uh, of the business, but our business model is designed to be volatile and capture the volatility profitably. Um, and so you sh- we don't care much about the short-term performance, and you shouldn't either. Uh, but definitely pay attention to the consistency of our long-term revenue growth and our paid user growth. 
So I want to ask you, uh, uh, as we start to get towards the end here, we could talk for a long time, but we can't talk for a long time. Um, you are talking to me from your, would you say you're in Portland? Uh, yeah. In, in, inside of a, a hundred plus year old giant bank with 30 foot ceilings and big columns into a space that you guys are turning into something like a club. Um, yeah. I, I got some emails. I think they might've been um, uh, marketing emails. I don't know if they're directly targeting me or not about a space similar to that in San Francisco, where you've opened up something that looks like a lounge in a club. Um, I, I'm not one to come, uh, talk about mixing work because I'm at Shack 15 most of the time in San Francisco, which is some combination of a workspace and a club. Yeah. Um, uh, in the San Francisco Ferry Building, uh, where we, we do this broadcast and, and uh, where this company is based. What is it about that space that you think is going to help you? Because it's an expensive endeavor and a, and a, a slow thing to grow. Is, as a market, is it a marketing expense? What do you, how do you look at those spaces? Well, so basically we have these big offices and we've had them before COVID. Um, but we also saw as a virtual first organization that once employees see they can succeed from anywhere in the world, they take a hard look at where they are and say, is, this, is San Francisco the right place for me and my family and so forth? And when you combine that with very high employee retention, people just reconsider where they want to live. And so we have these great offices and they're great offices for the people who live here, but we also saw people just moving all over the world. And so the way that we make these offices amazing for our own employees is by inviting really high quality guests in to work alongside us. So we yes, yes we invest in these offices because I like a good cocktail. I like a good cappuccino. I'm going to have that while I'm working. But it's also like, we have like 40,000 square feet here, but there's only like maybe 30 employees in Portland. That's like a thousand square foot plus per employee. It's just silly. <laughs> and so, but we want to have a, a great space and the way that we can afford or justify for ourselves to invest in these spaces is to open up to others because bring others into our space makes it better for us. There's also something psychically about leaving work when the space is cool. Not so much that you want to rush back there, but you kind of feel good about the place that you work, that it's that yeah. the company not just cares about you, but that it's just a cool existence to work for such a company. Yeah, you want to be inspired every day. Like we call it living rich, having fun, saving the world. And living rich is every day, your most boring day should be awesome. And I think that means working in an awesome place with awesome people. Yeah, great. I should do that. Well, I've got Isaac. He's awesome. <laughs> ben, our editor, is really awesome. He's up there in Portland. He can come visit you. Isaic and oh, I great. in Anytime. California will be a harder time. Um, David, I'm really grateful for your time. Expensify is a fascinating company, and we'll keep a closer eye on going forward. Um, and we wish you a lot of success uh, in the long term. Great. Hey, well, thanks short so much. Term, short term's fine, too. If you want to have some success in the short term, I'll, I'll wish that upon you as well. <laughs> David Barrett is the CEO of Expensify. When the drill down continues, we're going to have one number that tells you a little bit more about Expensify, the drill down bite, right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can't see me right now, but I'm holding in my hand an Amazon Alexa. Looks like a hockey puck. But if you were to say, hey, Alexa, play the Drill Down podcast, you could hear our latest show. So I encourage you to do so. Ask your smart speaker to play the Drill Down podcast and hear what we got going on. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to, you, talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the Drill Down Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Expensify. And yes, this is all about doing lots and lots of uh, data processing. How much? Isaac, these guys, since founding the company, have done 1.2 billion expense transactions on their platform. 
Uh, That's not a little. And they boasted at year end of having 711,000 uh, users, paid members across their uh, customer base. So lots of users, lots of transactions, and lots of growth from this company. I, th- I thought that was a really interesting conversation. Um, I, a little a little nuts about the don't say the word, don't say the stock price. First rule of stock prices, don't say the stock price. I don't know. It made a lot of sense to me if you actually just want to invest in the company. Yeah, but it sounded like a, an oppressive environment. Ah, Johnny said the stock price. He's fired. Well, if you know the rules, follow them. You know that would not be me. All right, we appreciate By the way, time. Corey, I got to mention. Yes. Foot Locker has a great website. I've been on it now. I might order some shoes. I'm glad you were paying great attention during that interview. Um, we're glad you, uh, our listeners, were paying great attention. I hope you enjoyed that show. There's more shows to come. We hope you'll be with us when that happens because Isaac Webster, our executive producer, will be with us as well as the silent and wonderful editor extraordinaire, Ben Wilson. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.